Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall tend, stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of his honor, there shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. In the passage that we read just a a short time ago, uh, one of the things that is absolutely clear in these verses is that God has an agenda. And that shouldn't be surprising. You know, God, these words are from God to us. And uh, God, when God speaks, he has an agenda behind those words. And it is absolutely clear what the agenda is in these verses. Could you identify what the agenda is? Did you recognize it? Well, God is unveiling to us in his words the greatness of of the future promises that belong to his children. God is unveiling, God is exposing, he's magnifying the greatness of the promises, the great hope that belongs to all those who are believing in him. He wants us to understand the greatness of our hope. And by the way, this is the same point of the next chapter, and it's the same point of the last chapter. God is passionate about unveiling before our eyes the greatness of the future hope and the promises of God. And I want you to understand this morning that this is not just an Old Testament agenda. This is also a New Testament agenda. 
God is passionate about comforting his people with the realities of their future hope. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 7 concerning why God saves his people. And tell me if you can hear these words and not be filled with joy. If you're a believer. God, Paul says that God saves us in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For eternity, God is determined to show us the incomparable riches, the inexhaustive um, storehouses of his kindness that is as infinite as God is infinite. Did you know that there are other ways besides just his words that God intends to communicate the greatness of his promises to us. And this is just a kind of a quick side note. But did you realize that the very circumstances that we are in are communicating to us the greatness of the promises of God? If you've noticed, after a season of cold and darkness and winter, some people love it, I don't understand it, but when there's snow on the ground and cold and we're shivering, and it's dark, and then all of a sudden the spring comes, and there's this brightness and this beauty. We love the spring so much more, don't we? In respect to the darkness, in contrast to the darkness, this whole life is God intending to magnify the greatness of his promises to his people. So none of this is accidental. The darkness we are in, the difficulties we are facing, the the death and decaying of this life is intended to magnify the promises of God that are coming our way. Isn't that incredible? All things are working together for good to those who love God. Even the darkness and decaying and difficulty and struggle that this life really is, is intended to magnify the greatness of God's promises when they come our way. Isn't that incredible? We also saw last week that if we are to understand the greatness of our hope, we must always connect it to the hope giver. Remember verses 1 through 3 of this chapter? Connected our hope to the hope giver. And why in the world is that important? Because the hope giver magnifies our hope. We do not have assurance. We do not have confidence. We don't even have any basis or reason for a hope without a hope giver that has a strong assurance connected to him. The greatness of our hope is determined by the greatness of the hope giver. And so last week we saw that we have a great basis and reason for our hope because of the gospel that was given by the servant who is Christ Jesus our Lord. And he didn't just give the gospel, but remember he is the gospel that he gives. And so our hope has just been magnified before our eyes in incredible, shining, brilliant ways. What an awesome hope we have. Every bit of our hope we have, all of it, every drop of it comes from Christ. Or you have false hope today. Every single drop of hope comes only from Christ if it is real and it is legitimate. 
So why might God be so passionate about communicating this? That's the big question, right? Well, in part, because our joy is at stake. God wants us to have joy. Isn't that amazing that God is concerned about your joy? He is passionate about your joy. He wants us to have real, authentic, otherworldly joy that makes no sense to this world and makes no sense to the circumstances that we are in. But on top of that, I have to say this, that your joy is not really God's ultimate purpose for communicating to you his promises. God's ultimate purpose is worship. God's ultimate purpose is his glory. God's ultimate purpose is that he would create worshipers for his name. And the path to worship always runs through delighting in God as your greatest savior and your greatest joy and your greatest delight. You will never arrive at worship if you don't go through the path of delighting and treasuring and exalting and magnifying Christ as your only Savior and your only hope. That is the only path to worship. And God is passionate about his worship. So throughout the Bible, he is bringing his people, he's crushing people with the reality of their condition, that they are lost and hopeless without Christ. And he's magnifying himself as their savior. And he's bringing us to the greatest of all treasures so that we would delight in him and worship him and praise him again. God is passionate about creating worshipers. And that's what God is about. And that's what God is doing. We can only worship God as we ought to to the degree that we delight in him as being our only hope and only treasure. Paul summarizes the purpose for why God saves us in this way. In Ephesians 1 verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why God saves. Because God is in the business of creating worshipers who will bring the glory that's due his name to him. And praise and worship that honors God is always born out of joy in being saved. You can really see this purpose of God throughout the Old and the New Testament. Why did God deliver his people from Egypt? So that they would worship him. You look at Ezra and Nehemiah, the Old Testament books, and you see that what was the purpose of them being restored to, to, to Jerusalem, to Israel, to their land? was so that they would build up the temple and worship God. But ultimately, only God himself could fully restore worship, couldn't he? That is why Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. That's what Jesus was saying, is that I will restore worship. I am the one who's creating worship. My own body, my own death, my own burial, my own resurrection is the means to restoring and creating worship. And I am the only one who can do that. It's located in me. So I want to lead you to worship God appropriately today. And so to do this, I want to lead you to see the exceedingly great promises of God that belong to every one of his children. So last week we looked at the good news of the servant will bring, 
And he preaches the good news in verses 1 through 3. The first part of verse 3. The question is, how specifically will, God, will, will this good news affect believing people? How will this good news affect you? What is God's purpose that this good news would bring forth? What is the effect of this good news? And what we see here in verses 3, the second half of verse 3 to verse 9, is that God is going to bring forth a transformation. And all of this is the fruit of the gospel. All that we're going to look at today is the fruit of the gospel. And it's a transformation that God is going to bring about. So God will transform his people in such a way that they will be called mighty oaks of righteousness. We see that in verse 3, the second half. We read that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So what comes to your mind when you think of an oak? I'm not sure if you've ever dealt with oak, but it's a really dense wood. It's, it's strong. It, it brings to our mind a sense of stability and permanence. So in contrast to a great oak, what would you think of being the opposite of that? Maybe uh, some grass or chaff that the wind blows away. You can look at Psalm 1. You think of anything that's weak, unstable, not permanent, that kind of blows with the wind, you know, with every new fad and every new thought and direction. It would be the opposite of an oak. But what it says here is that we're not supposed to understand um, the strength here in oak-like terms as far as physical strength, are we? This isn't talking about physical strength here, like Hercules, right, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an oak of righteousness. We're talking about a far superior strength than physical strength. Infinitely superior strength than physical strength. So what does it mean when it says an oak of righteousness? Well, it's certainly telling us the type of oak-like structure, right? It's not physical. It's spiritual. But to have righteousness is to have God's strength. It's to have God's stability. It's to have God's permanence. This is true strength, true stability, and true permanence. This is what it means to be truly healthy in a whole, in a holistic way. And this is the only strength, the only stability, the only surety that even matters in the long run. So the question is, how does someone become an oak of righteousness? How did this come about? And the answer is, it says here, because God planted them. It's the planting of God. These are the oaks that God planted. God takes credit for oaks. If there is ever an oak, a true righteous oak, God is the one who planted it. And he will always take credit for it. If you remember, some of the Pharisees were more like grass, right? In Jesus' day, they were kind of like weeds, swaying in the wind, following their own desires and kind of uh, making it look spiritual, right? Well, God, ex Jesus exposed what they were really like and where they came from. In Matthew 15, verse 13 through 14, it says, Jesus said this, he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be, will be rooted up. 
Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So how does God make someone oak-like? How does he do that? Well, the means to become oak-like is only one way. There's only one means, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of a Savior who can give us the righteousness of Christ and can transform us into people who reflect the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way to become oak-like is through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only in that way can we become strong, stable, and permanent people. So why does God do this? Do you see a clue? Or not just a clue, the answer here for why God does this. What is the purpose for why God creates oaks through his gospel? And the answer is absolutely clear here. So that God may be glorified. I didn't make that up. That's what it says there. The reason is so that God may be glorified. For God to do anything else but magnify himself in the Bible would be idolatry. Would be the worst thing possible. It would be unloving to the supreme degree. God would be unloving if he didn't magnify himself. If he didn't pursue his glory, it would be unloving. Because God pursuing his glory is God pursuing our good. When our hearts are transformed to love him and delight in him, that is our greatest good. And God is most glorified when we do. If you're a believer, you're an oak of righteousness. You're justified. If you're a believer, you're becoming an oak of righteousness. You're being sanctified. Now, you might not feel like it. You might not look like it. But God has determined to shape you into an oak of righteousness through his gospel. Praise God for his amazing grace. God will also transform his people from being like a ruined city because of sin into being like a glorious and magnificent city because of grace. Verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Can you imagine when God's people returned from Babylon, right? They returned to their homeland. They, were, they, they took the long journey back home. Can you imagine what it would have been like when they got back? Total devastation. Everything was ruined. There was nothing left for them. Every single building was in shambles. The whole wall was destroyed. And what good is a city without walls? It would have been basically condemned and ruined beyond imaginable repair. Right? It would have been totally discouraging. You've been discouraged in life. This would have been worse. This would have been incredibly discouraging for those who returned. Everything would have been destroyed. You might imagine it kind of like your kids' rooms, right? A complete disaster always. So what, could, what did God do for his people when they, came, when they came back to this terrible, awful condition? Well, the answer is God strengthened them. God protected them, God provided for them, and literally, miraculously, they were able to rebuild their city. 
And you could read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. That was truly a miracle of God. But here we're talking about an infinitely greater devastation, aren't we? The infinitely greater devastation is because of our sin. Our sin created the greatest wreckage and ruin imaginable. Sin has ruined everything completely. And we experience a taste of this ruined world every single day that we're alive. Sin has ruined everything beyond repair. There is no hope of repairing what has been ruined because of sin. Kind of like that car that they said was totaled. And that house that they said was condemned. This was you and this was me. We were beyond repair. We were ruined. But God promises something amazing here. He promises that the ruined city will be rebuilt. It will be restored. It will be repaired. And, what, and, and the question is, who is going to build this ruined city? And what is this ruined city referring to that's going to be rebuilt? Well, God is going to build this ruined city. And what's going to be rebuilt is the church. The church of Jesus Christ is what is being built here. And how is it going to be rebuilt? Through the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, the good news that we have today. That's how the church is built. But here it says something kind of strange, right? It says here, they will rebuild it. Well, who is building the city? Is God rebuilding the city? Or is the church rebuilding the city? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. God will rebuild her, and he will use the church to do so. God repairs what is broken through his church as the church proclaims the gospel. As we give the gospel, God is restoring and building his church. The building of the church comes through the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves like living stones are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This should give us hope. You, you should have amazing, deep, great hope today. No matter how devastated and ruined things appear to be, how desolate the land seems to become, God will restore the church through the gospel. Things are not beyond repair, praise God. Now we don't see this in the fullness yet of glory, do we? We look around us and the church just doesn't look all that glorious all the time. But I want to tell you that things are happening beyond our ability to see. That God's purpose is being fulfilled today through the church. Believe it or not, God's purpose is being fulfilled to the church and one day we will see it in its fullness. And we'll look back and say, I never saw that. I never understood what God was doing. But he is working. It is not failing, <laughs> even though it might appear so. God will transform his people into faithful ministers to the nations, verses five through six. I don't have time to read it. <laughs> but when we hear the word priest, as it appears in these verses, we often don't know what to do with that word, do we? Because we don't have priests today. We don't have people who function in the office of priest, right? So we have to wonder, what does it mean that God will make them priests? And a priest is someone who stood between God and the people. A priest is someone who leads worship. 
They lead people to worship God. They lead people to God. You might say a priest is someone who binds up the brokenhearted, right? Who, who leads people to God so that they can worship him. That's what a priest does. That's how they function. Throughout the Old Testament, they would lead people to, to the sacrifices that would lead them to God, right? And so God's intention for his people was for them to relate to the nations as priests. We see this in Exodus 19, verse 5 through 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Through their obedience, they were going to show the world who God was. They were going to show that there was only one God, and who this God was through their faithfulness to the covenant they had with God. And this is the way they were to be ministers of God to the nations around them. But what happened? She failed to fulfill her purpose as priests and ministers to the world. The ideal never came to pass. They were never able to be faithful to God. And because of their failure, the nations conquered and oppressed and enslaved them. This was God's judgment on them. But here we see God will transform his people to be faithful ministers to the nations. God will make his people into priests and ministers of God. God is going to bring to pass what he required of them. And he is going to make them able to do what he requires for them to do. Isn't that great? God calls us to do something, and he makes us able to do what he requires us to do. How will God do this? And you already know what the answer is. God does this through the gospel. The gospel is able to transform hearts and make faithful priests and ministers of the Lord. And we know that this begins with Jesus. He is the true Israel. He is the gospel, and he brings the gospel. And then we see this literally happening in the book of Acts as the gospel spread from the Jews to the Gentile nations and throughout the whole world. In Acts, you see this literally being fulfilled. They are ministering and being priests to the nations. And then it goes out throughout the whole world. In a similar way, we are to be ministers to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ today. The gospel exposes false gods and idols of this world. It magnifies the true God. It also shows the way to God that the nations may come to. If we do not do this, then how are we otherwise to do any good for anyone in all of our lives? We can't do anyone any good outside of bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what people need to hear. And we have the privilege and responsibility of bringing them the gospel Let's not waste our lives. Let's be faithful ministers to God. We also see that God will transform his people from being in a position of shame and dishonor into receiving a double portion and experiencing everlasting joy in verse 7. The question is, what could possibly bring shame and dishonor on someone's life? You know, if the whole world was turned against you, that would not be ultimate shame. That wouldn't be. It really wouldn't be ultimate shame. There's only one thing that can bring ultimate shame and dishonor. And that is if God himself were to turn his back on you. That's ultimate shame and that's ultimate dishonor. And God turns his back on those who rebel against him. Those who sin against him. 
God is righteous and he is just and he will always act in a righteous and a just way. He cannot look favorably at sin. God turns his back on unrighteousness. This is what we brought on ourselves. We brought the shame and dishonor of God on ourselves through our sin. And Israel is a great example of that, aren't they? The nations ravaged them because of their sin. And this is a picture of what happened to us. This is a picture of each one of us in our own natural state. But here God says he's going to save his people and give them the opposite of shame and dishonor. God is going to bring his people the opposite of shame and dishonor. And what in the world does a double portion mean, right? We ask ourselves, that's the opposite of shame and dishonor, is a double portion, everlasting joy. But what does, shame and, what does a double portion mean? And the answer is, the firstborn would receive a double portion, right? It means the fullness of God's blessings. It means not just one portion, but a double portion of God's blessings that belong to the eldest child. And so how does this transformation from shame to joy bring. I'm so thankful, by the way, for, uh, for Grayson. I, I am. I'm thankful for his encouragement. <laughs> that is awesome. Praise God. I'm glad, Grayson, that you are here and, and encouraging me on. God is going to give us the fullness of joy, and it only comes through the gospel, doesn't it? Double blessing through Christ alone. How much does God bless us? We might not see the fullness in this life. We won't see the fullness in life. But God promises us double blessing. And he is our blessing and the fullness of it. And what will result of this? Rejoicing, everlasting joy. Praise God for the wonderful outcome that will result. God will also transform his people in such a way that justice from God towards them will look like reward rather than a punishment for sin. Think about that. God will transform his people in such a way that um, justice from that, for them will be reward rather than punishment for sin. And we see this in verse 8. I have to read it. Sorry. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with them. When we hear what, God's love, what God loves, our ears should be attentive. Our ears should listen up. What God loves is lovely. What God loves is delightful. What God loves is the supremely lovely thing. And it's what we should love, right? What God loves, we should love. And to the degree he loves it, we should love it. That's what it means to be right. So what does it say God loves here? God loves justice. And to love justice means you hate robbery and iniquity. If you don't hate robbery and if you don't hate iniquity, you don't love justice, right? And you're not right. There's something wrong with you. When you think of God, this is how you should view him. You should think of God as a lover of justice and a hater of injustice and iniquity. And everything he does reflects this truth about him. Everything God does reflects his character. And so to love justice means that God must do two things. He must punish evil and he must reward what is good. And we often think of justice only in the terms of punishment, don't we? And, and that makes sense because we deserve punishment from God, right? And so that makes sense that we would often think of it as punishment. 
But punishment for wrong does not completely define justice. Reward for right is just as much justice for righteousness as punishment is for wrong. And we need to understand that. In this case, strangely enough, how strange are these words to our ears, God's concern for justice towards his people does not appear to be directed against them in the sense of judgment, but rather in the sense of reward. God is promising them reward and to make an everlasting covenant with him. Now, is that reward or what? Is that good? There's no greater good than that. That's an amazing thought. So how could justice be reward for God's people when they have only deserved judgment and punishment? How could that possibly be justice from God? And the only answer is that God will make his people righteous. So that God's just response to his people is reward. We did not earn reward, but yet it belongs to us. It is justice for us if we're in Christ. Because he is the one who makes us righteous. He's the one who declares us righteous. And the amazing thing is, and get this, God does it in such a way that he does not tarnish his name. God is able to make us righteous in such a way that he is righteous in doing so. And that, by the way, is the greatest problem in the world. How can God make someone righteous and remain righteous at the same time? And that's the amazing reality of the gospel. We read that in Romans 3, verse 26. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Marvel at the greatness of the gospel. Only God could have come up with something as amazing as his saving work in the gospel. When God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, by saying all these things shall be added to you, he is saying that I will act justly. A God who is just will bless those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So God's rewarding of his just ones and his keeping of his covenant, along with his punishing of the evil, is the ultimate evidence of God's justice and righteousness. And someday we will see the fullness of it. God also will transform the status of his people among the nations to being known as those who are blessed by God in verse 9. And that's all we've been saying this whole time. Kind of a, a summary statement here in verse 9. You who are formerly known as being cursed of God, because that is the standing and the status of all who are not trusting in him as their savior. They are under the curse of God, standing under his just wrath and his judgment. Those who are formerly under his curse are now known as being blessed by God. It will be obvious to all. And how will this come about? Because of the gospel. Christ became a curse for us so that we might be made the righteousness of Christ. So what is the proper response to this good news of this great life-transforming hope? And the answer is, there's only one answer, and that is to rejoice. And isn't that God's purpose for all of this? 
God's purpose for all of this is to bring forth rejoicing from his people. If you are getting this, your heart is welling up with rejoicing and delight and praise in your Savior. And we see that in verse 10. God's people are responding here to what God has done for her with joy. And notice what God does. He clothes his bride with salvation and righteousness. Now, the, the, the same word is used, salvation and righteousness, to refer to the same thing, right? And that, just like the oak, that means it's not a physical salvation merely. It's a spiritual salvation, isn't it? And that's why it says righteousness as well. This is a, a, a saving righteousness. This is a salvation that is a righteous salvation, right? The Messiah has given his people garments of righteousness, and that is our salvation, is God's righteousness. This is the greatest gift of all. And notice that it's described as a gift here. It comes from God as a gift. And salvation is always a gift from God. That is the only way we can receive it as a gift. And what a gift this is. What is the greatest gift anyone has ever given you? What God is giving here is the greatest gift of all. It's his own character. It's his own righteousness. What greater gift can we possibly be given? Christ clothes his people in his own character of righteousness. And therefore, what can you say of God's people but that they are splendid in beauty? What an awesome, incredible beauty that we see as God's people reflect the glory of their Savior because of his work. This means that God not only commands righteousness, but he also provides what he commands through the gospel. This has always been what God's people needed. Whatever you think you need today, you don't need it. <laughs> what you need is the righteousness of Christ, and that's all you need. Only this can restore us into favor with God. We have so many things that plague our lives, so many problems, so many things that we become distracted with and weigh us down in life. When all we need is the righteousness of Christ, that's all we need. And if we have the righteousness of Christ, we have everything we need. So the reason for this joy is therefore not merely or even primarily the transformed circumstances, as good as that is, but rather God himself. One commentator pointed to a song called The Sands of Time. I've never heard it. But in The Sands of Time, it says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. So the joy is never the garments alone, but also and more so the one who made the garments possible. His love, his power, and his gracious giving of himself. And apart from the giver in his presence, the wedding dress is of little value. I want you to know, and we need to understand as God's people, that such praise to God is the characteristic mark of God's people throughout time. If we are not a church that loves to praise God, then we are not a church at all. That is what we are about. That is what we do. Everything we do is based on praising God for his amazing grace. Whether it's giving the gospel, whether it's singing, whether it's fellowshipping around the good news of Jesus Christ, everything is praising him. That's not a side dish. That is the main course of all that we do. 
So finally, can we really praise God for this? Is our joy really appropriate, or do we have a presumptuous joy that we're trying to cultivate here? Could we be rejoicing prematurely? Well, it depends on how confident we can be in his promises. And notice verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout out from before the nations. How confident can we be that the seeds and the earth will grow new plants? Isn't it amazing? We just witnessed this. We, all around us, the, the grass grows, everything, the leaves start growing automatically. Isn't it amazing? Imagine if it didn't. We'd be like, what's going on here? But every single year, the same thing happens. And we don't even have to do anything, right? And the weeds grow. Everything grows. Everything just grows up. It's amazing. Well, God uses the imagery of agriculture and seeds in a garden here to convey to us the absolute certainty of his promises. He points to the reliability of all these things that we see growing around us to the reliability of his word. The point is that the joyous response for salvation just described is absolutely certain because of God's word. It is absolutely certain. We can be absolutely confident that righteousness and, and salvation will spring up and praise will spring up because God who says it will do it. And so therefore our praise should be wholehearted should be loud and should be clear, should be in obedience, should be singing, should be the words we say, should be in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our praise to our God that should come from our church. So how does God create worshipers? Through the gospel. The gospel gives birth to hope. The gospel gives birth to praise. The gospel gives you, as Peter called it, a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Not based on the factors of this world, but based on inexpressible grace and mercy. Are you a worshiper of God today? Is that what your life chiefly consists of? Do you delight in the promises of God? If you don't, you need to ask yourself if the promises belong to you at all. Do you even know God? If, that, if you do not know God, then your response should be to worship God through repenting and believing in him alone for your salvation. Repenting and believing in God is an act of worship. And it's the first act of worship. And our lives become repenting and praising God and turning to him constantly throughout our lives. How do you grow as a worshiper? How do you become a louder worshiper, a clearer worshiper? Some of our worship is faint. Some of us are filled with fear, even though we are believers. We struggle daily with fear and other things that can cause us our worship to be, to be, to be quiet and hardly noticeable. Well, if you want to grow in your worship, simply look at Christ. See Christ in the scriptures. Look at him. Gaze at him. Do not look away. If salvation is looking at Christ for the first time, then sanctification and praise that comes out of our heart is gazing at Christ and not looking away. You understand the Savior who brings these promises and how he does it if you're to praise and worship God. Ask God to give you faith to believe in him. And let's be a church that worships God. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your care. Thank you, Lord, for your promises that are exceedingly great. 
Lord, there is no terrible, more terrible condition than to stand right now outside of your, pro- of your promises, to be under the very wrath of God. And Lord, I fear that there are some in this room who are standing right now under your wrath. Your judgment at any moment could fall on their heads. And so we pray that you would reach out with your amazing grace. May you create oaks of righteousness. May your good news of your gospel penetrate their hearts. And may you destroy the false confidences that they have created in their lives. And may you bring them to their knees before Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give them the faith to believe in you, Jesus. I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would repent, and that they would turn and be saved. You said if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so I pray that you bring salvation right here and right now. And God, I pray for the believers who are in this room, those who are faint-hearted, those who are struggling in this life, those who feel crushed by the, by the darkness and the difficulty of this world. Lord, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us of the exceedingly great promises of God. I pray that you would create worship in our hearts today, that we would rejoice and delight in you, and that we would know that the darkness is only creating for us greater rejoicing that is to come. Even if we cannot understand it, may it cause us to rejoice in you because you have a great plan and you are a great God and your promises are sure. In Jesus' name. Amen.